Hello, and welcome to the Soundweavers podcast. Soundweavers explores the trials and tribulations of small ensemble musicianship through conversations with leading performers and composers. Today's episode features composer Rena Esmail. We hope you enjoy. Lovely and wonderful gentlefolk, welcome back to the Sound Weavers podcast. As always, I am your harping host, Dr. Rosanna Moore, and my amazing partner in crime today is the wonderful and amazing Dr. Adam Paul Cordell. How are you today, my dear? I'm doing well, thank you. How are you? Uh, not too shabby. Thank you so much for asking. So we're really excited for our guest today, the amazing and wonderful Rina Esmail. Now, Rina is an Indian-American composer who has worked on bringing both the Indian and Western classical musics together, and also with bringing communities together through the creation of equitable spaces. She has won a number of awards and also has been commissioned by ensembles such as the Kronos Quartet, Imani Winds, the Richmond Symphony, Town Music Seattle, and so, so many more. So without further ado, we'd like to say a huge, huge welcome to Rina Esmail. Thank you so much for joining us today. It's so delightful to be here. Thanks for having me. You have focused your artistry on creating equitable spaces that bring communities together, concentrating specifically on weaving the worlds of Hindustani and Western musics. So how were you introduced to Hindustani music? Has this been a lifelong passion or is it something that you discovered later? You know, it's interesting because I really have my background is in Western classical music. And when I was young, that was because my mother is from a part of India that um, was colonized by Portugal. So of course, you know, when I started expressing interest in music, she thought to put me in guitar lessons and violin and piano and things like that. And so that's how I got this Western music education. But it took me a lot longer to discover um, Hindustani classical music. And truly what happened is I went through pretty much an undergrad in music composition at Juilliard before I started to feel the fact that I was different, the fact that I came from a culture that wasn't necessarily represented in the music that I was doing wasn't enough for me. Like I love Beethoven. I love, you know, I loved playing the piano. I loved all these Western classical composers, but I just wanted more. And I specifically wanted to engage with the music of my own culture. And so it was really through people, through meeting Indian classical musicians and being so fascinated by them just as human beings, you know, of getting to see into their world and realizing that we shared so much as people made me then want to understand the music that they were experts in. And so then that's what actually brought me to Indian classical music. But that took, you know, until my 20s. 
Yeah. Have you incorporated any Carnatic influences in your music? It's interesting because the first um, Indian classical musician I ever associated with was a Carnatic musician named Shobhana Raghavan. She's a classical singer. And um, at that point, I didn't know anything about any Indian classical music. And so I, I started collaborations with her. But what I noticed at that time, and I don't know that this is tr that true anymore, but there's a lot more Hindustani music that's connected to Western classical music than there is Carnatic music. And again, that's changing. But I think everyone I met after her happened to be a Hindustani musician. And then when I went to India and studied, I studied with Hindustani musicians. So I would say kind of by chance it happened that way. Um, but um, certainly it's, it's, an, it's an area of exploration that life is long so I'm sure I'll return to it at some point. So talking of Indian classical musics uh, are you exclusively interested in Indian classical musics or have you explored more contemporary styles for example Bollywood now I the listeners know this I'm huge into my musical theater so anything to do with this I'm like yes this is great. Um, actually, it's interesting because I love both Bollywood and Western musical theater. Um, I think if I had been left to my own devices and if I hadn't, you know, been trained in classical music, I probably would have landed up as a musical theater composer. Like I, I love musical theater. It's really incredible. I was a rent head back in the day. You know, I, I knew every single word of La Vie Boheme. Like it was, I'm totally that person. Um, but then when I got into Indian classical music, I realized that, you know, Bollywood is just so um, rich and has so many uh, amazing influences in it. And I think it actually uses elements of in Hindustani classical or Indian classical music more than um, uh, Western musical theater uses elements of Western classical music. Like the styles are a little bit more connected. And and that's really amazing. And so what was so funny, though, is that, you know, if you grow up in India or if you grow up in a family that, you know, it really is uh, Indian from India, um, you will just know these songs. They're just things that everyone sings. But for me, you know, my parents didn't know them. I, I was just going into India completely green. And so I would actually learn these pieces like you would learn uh, an art song or something. I sit down with the words and be like, okay, these are the words, These, the, this is the music. I have to actually really learn them. So that's that's how I started learning Bollywood. But um, I also started the Indian acapella group at Yale, you know, back when I was a, a master's student there. So I did all their initial arrangements and, you know, it was, it was just, it was amazing because you learn so much about a culture by um, engaging with their popular music music and their styles that everyone knows rather than only their classical music. Um, can you talk a little bit about the process of preparing your application for the Fulbright Nehru grant that provided you the opportunity to study with Hindustani musicians Srimati, Lakshmi, Shankar, and Gaurav? Mazandar? Yeah. So, I mean, it's interesting, actually, um, the person I studied with in India was Gaurav Mazandar. And um, when I came back to the U.S., um, Lakshmi Shankar, who is the um, sister-in-law of Ravi Shankar, she actually lives lived in California before she passed away in 2013, or I guess late 2012. But, um, you know, so it was interesting because it started way before I applied to the Fulbright, where Gaurav is a sitar player who had come uh, to give a concert in the U.S. And I I was an undergrad at Juilliard at the time. He was giving a concert at the Met with um, this violinist, Daniel Hope. And it was 2005, went to see this concert and everyone knew who Daniel was and there were just less people who knew who Gorov was. So I was so fascinated by him, went and talked to him and that started this really long relationship. And so, um, 
when I decided to go to India and study, he was one of the people that I knew. And so I began taking lessons with him, but then also, you know, touring around India, going to uh, music festivals, just imbibing the culture along with the music and kind of learning what it meant to be um, Indian in India, you know, but I mean, to go back to your question about the application, it was really amazing because, you know, I grew up in Los Angeles and I grew up in a place where there were certain, um, I guess I will say I grew up in a time when um, India was not really a known entity. Like people didn't go out for Indian food with, with their families. That, that just wasn't the thing that happened back then. So me saying that I was from India was like, oh, I could just be from Mars. Like it wasn't a, a known entity for people. You know, so I grew up speaking a language called Gujarati, which is from the region of Gujarat in India. But I mean, it was just like gibberish to people. No one knew what it was. And it wasn't until I had to fill out that Fulbright application where I realized I could actually bring in my own culture. Like I, the fact fact that I knew this language mattered for the first time in my life. And so even kind of putting energy in that direction made me feel like parts of me were valued that had never been valued before. And that felt really good and really interesting and really, um, really different. So we're going to veer a slightly different direction now and talk about your time between 2016 and 2018, where you served as the composer in residence for Street Symphony. Now, for our listeners, Street Symphony is a nonprofit organization that brings music to Los Angeles-based homeless and incarcerated populations on Skid Row and beyond. So launching into the questions for that. How do you approach composing for listeners who are less likely to have had prior listening experiences uh, that prepare them for Western classical music and to further that Hindustani music? You know, I actually find it so much easier to interact with people who don't understand what the agreements of classical music are, right? You know, when we go to a concert, I mean, there are so many times, like, look, I have four degrees in Western <laughs> classical music, and there are times when I do not understand what's going on in a concert, or I feel like deeply uncomfortable being there. You know, you get that sense that like, oh, everyone is it knows what's happening and you just don't. And if you're not in the community, it feels weird. So in a certain way, working with people people on Skid Row, working with people in jails and homeless shelters, working with people in different cultural communities is almost easier because you're, um, level of interaction just has to be on a human level. So, you know, if people like something, they'll just exclaim in the middle of a concert, or if they want to chime in, they'll just chime in. And there's something that's deeply human about that. And so writing into those spaces and writing into spaces where actually you do get feedback, you know, you know, if someone likes something and they're not just like politely clapping at the end of a concert, it's so much easier to grow in spaces like that. And it's so much easier to engage and to be engaged. And so in a way, I think maybe the, the, the opposite question is the question of like, what do I take back into a, a system where there are so many rules and regulations from a system that's so kind of open and free or from even just the lack of that system. I've certainly, I'm sure all of us have been in concerts where people clap in between movements and there's always that little old man who sort of gives you a dirty look for doing so. It's like, no, they've done a good job. Let us show our appreciation for this. That's a hugely important thing. Yeah. And we crave that because I mean, how often, I mean, in a way I'm so jealous of um, stand-up comics, right? Because yes. they get right away. The minute they tell a joke, like they know 
whether it was good or not, whether it hit or not. And for us, I mean, it's almost like the further you get as a composer, the less people will be like, Hey, I didn't get that. What was that? You just don't know. And so it's, I, I wish that I was in more situations where there was that level of interaction. And actually I will say Indian classical music does have that and spending a year in India studying Indian classical music and obviously being deeply involved in it afterwards, you can see that even when people arrive at certain moments in rhythmic cycles, the whole audience is with them. When people announce the, the compositions or the rags that they're going to sing, people are completely with them. And I just, I love that there's that shared context and I love that that engagement is so um, immediate. How did you envision your work within the Street Symphony's mission to center its practices in relationship, renewal, reentry, and recovery? You know, it's interesting. I feel like I was part of Street Symphony at a time when we were building a lot of these practices together, you know, and so in a lot of ways, um, we were a group of people. And I mean, obviously, they still are a group of people who um, really um it is in a way we just want to interact and we want to engage. And so I think I started with um, choir on Skid Row. And again, you know, as a composer, I you kind of start to see yourself as an anthropologist where you're just going to be on a fly on the wall. You're going to go to a rehearsal and no one will notice you and you'll just be observing. And of course, you can't do that in communities. If you're there, you're there as your whole self. And I noticed that they pulled me in right away and they were like, if you're going to be here, come sing with us, come get to know us. And um, admittedly, that was something that I just hadn't experienced in my career up until that point. So, um, what was really interesting is that you just get to know people, you get to know their stories and you get to know the ways in which, um, you know, those preconceived notions you have about the right and wrong ways to do things are just thrown out the window and you have nothing to follow but your own intuition. And so it was kind of out of that intuition and out of that engagement with people that I started to build pieces that I thought that they would like. And ultimately, I think that's how I think as a composer. I find people who have a unique voice, people who can teach me a lot, and then figure out how I can write something that will, A, kind of allow them to express the best of who they are, and B, allow for a kind of an interaction and exchange to happen. And that means something so different based on who the people are. And in this case, you know, in Skid Row, the question is, if you're writing for people who are you know, anywhere from people who have had extensive choral experience in their um, 
and childhoods to people who are complete amateurs and have never sung in a choir before. How do you make sure that everyone feels like they're able to interact and engage deeply? And of course, you know, not everyone can just go and sing the Brahms Requiem on no rehearsal. I mean, that's not what that piece is designed for, but that doesn't mean that we can't write a piece that is specifically designed for that situation. And so for me, then that's a really interesting compositional challenge to think, okay, how do I write into a space where maybe people can't uh, come to a rehearsal, where maybe people have these differing values, where maybe if I'm writing for professionals, and community, it's not one level. There's different things that honor different people. And you can write pieces that make all of that possible. I love that approach, that context-driven engagement. Yeah, so to talk about another nonprofit organization of which you are a part, you are the artistic director of Shastra, which is a an organization promoting cross-cultural music connecting the musical traditions of India and the West. You must find it daunting to integrate and maybe even fuse these two massive traditions. I'd like to note that the word Shastra is defined by several sources as an instruction manual, a book of knowledge, a religious treatise, or sacred book, if that helps to understand the magnitude of this word. Can you talk a little bit about how you begin the vision work necessary to establish salient and impactful goals for your projects? Yeah, I mean, actually, to just go back to to the, the word and what it means, I mean, it essentially kind of means doctrine or treatise or something. And initially, the the title we were going to have was Naya Shastra, the new treatise, the new doctrine to kind of be like, okay, here's this, this way of doing things that's been established, but this new doctrine kind of interaction with one another, hence the word Shastra was born. I mean, to return to your question, the most important thing is just kind of having experience and being in situations. And I think, you know, what I notice, I do a lot of residencies at schools and colleges and talk to a lot of students and people kind of want to have the answers and they want to kind of get the silver bullet in a way of what are the five things that I need to do to, you know, interact with this thing. And it's, it's interesting because I often feel that I'm on the receiving end of that, where people are like, what do I need to do to kind of treat you with respect and treat you correctly and, you know, et cetera, et cetera. But to me, you learn from deep engagement and you learn when both parties are not afraid to make mistakes and be wrong. Right. Because of course, you know, as a composer, just in general, you um, learn rules, you learn what different instruments can do, what different capabilities are. But I mean, I'm not going to um, be inspired based on the, the range of an alto flute. That's not the, the place where my, my inspiration <laughs> starts from, right? So it's like, I, I, those are all things that on the back end help you kind of rein in your ideas, but you have to really cast the, that net very far. So, you know, what I always say is that when you're doing that internal work of just building something, you have to be able to step on one another's toes and you have to be able to be wrong and ask the stupid questions. And, you know, my, my co-director, Saili Oak, um, who is a Hindustani singer, she basically has the, the opposite experience of me where she's, you know, deeply trained by one of the, the most amazing singers, Ashwini Bide Deshpande. Um, and now she came to the US and now has been singing with orchestras and choirs. But the thing about our relationship is like, we laugh a lot because we are wrong a lot. And we say so many stupid, things so that by the time we get to the stage, you know, all those things have been worked out. And then it seems like this inevitable, you know, beautiful little nugget of art. Um, but I just think we're at a point in our world where we're really afraid to be wrong. And there's a lot that can be lost from us being wrong. And I mean, that scares me creatively, because I think it's really important to be able to just 
ask that question. And I mean, all this to say that it's been really interesting. The, the places where I feel sometimes the most deeply engaged is actually by children because children don't yet know what not to ask. And so sometimes they'll ask you questions that are brilliant because they just don't know that they're not supposed to ask them yet. <laughs> and then that's where some of the, the best ideas come from for me is from, from really young people. So we're going to get back to Shastra and talk about your programs. Uh, so some of your programs include a workshop which pairs Hindustani vocalists um, with Western composers and instrumentalists as a mechanics of Western music for Hindustani musicians course and a Hindustani rhythm immersion experience. Uh, how did you develop these workshops and into what they are today and what do they actually entail? I mean, essentially, they come out of these personal interactions that I've had with Indian classical musicians. And it comes out of exactly what we were just saying, right? This idea of, of wanting to have a place to kind of collaborate and ask those questions and not be afraid to just ask whatever questions you need to ask. So truly, Sile Oak and I work together and built projects together, and we want other people to have that experience. So, um, you know, we've started doing these workshops where we invite a number of Indian classical singers and a number of composers. And again, they're just people who we have the same um, uh, skill set as they do, but we've just interacted across cultures a little bit more. And then we guide them into these collaborations with one another, and they get to really engage deeply um, with the other tradition. And the idea is that um, once you kind of meet the person, once once there's a, a, a name and a face on the other side of that collaboration, you can kind of take it forward and you can do whatever you want. But just those first moments sometimes are a little bit difficult. And so that's what we've been trying to kind of mitigate in various ways. Um, and so, you know, for the Indian musicians, we do a crash course in Western music and then vice versa, and just give them enough tools to be able to begin to ask their own um, questions. Um, and so, yeah, this this summer we're running a workshop for actually just Indian singers to be able to um, engage with Western classical music. And you'd be so surprised. It's not necessarily that we're teaching them Western classical music, but really obvious things like um, you know, when, when we say, you know, you're in a, a rehearsal with a string quartet, you're like, oh, let's take it from bar 87. That means nothing to a Hindustani musician because they're an improviser. So they're in the rehearsal freaking out because they have no idea where, where you are or where they need to be, or even things like sight lines. You know, if someone's sitting on the floor and a conductor is standing uh, on a podium, how can you see that person? Where do you need to be, you know? And so just these things like that, that you would never think of, but that just make things so much easier once you know them, those are the things we try to impart to our students. Yeah, so this past season, we spoke with Indonesian composer Ikatut Gedeasnawa about the challenges of teaching Balinese gamelan, a primarily aural tradition, to an American population accustomed to using notated music as the main means of transmission. 
Are there similar challenges when introducing Western classical musicians to Hindustani music? And how about introducing Hindustani musicians to Western music? Yeah, it's it's interesting because I mean, some of the challenges are are just uh, these really seminal issues that we can't get over, and some of them are just hilarious, like side notes. So, um, yeah, I think. What's interesting is that Indian Hindustani classical music and Western classical music kind of value very different things. So um, with Hindustani music, there is this level of melody that's just so, because it's a oral tradition, it's so um, fine level that sometimes uh, Western musicians can't even perceive what's happening. And then on the other hand, say um, Hindustani music has rhythm that's articulated clearly by a percussion instrument, whereas in Western music, it's not, it's kind of implied by even the melodic instruments. So just these differences in perception can sometimes lead to all kinds of um, just misunderstandings about the different kind of music. But then there are just so many logistical challenges. Like, I mean, for instance, the rehearsal process is um, kind of crazy if you don't know what it is. I mean, there were situations where um, Indian musicians showed up kind of thinking, oh, I don't really need to know a part. I can just improvise. Like, I know this raga, it should be fine. Not realizing, oh, I have to be in at a certain measure and this conductor waves their arm once and then I have to, you know, start playing. And I mean, it's really what I love, what's so fascinating is looking at one culture through the eyes of the other culture. Like I can imagine myself as an Indian classical musician, watching a person wave their hand, make no sound, and like somehow I have to just know where the beat is. I mean, I, they never stop, right? They're kind of just moving around. So I can see it completely through the eyes of the Hindustani musicians. And then, you know, obviously can see through the eyes of the Western musicians being like, well, they're improvising. I mean, I guess they're doing something. It's never quite the same. I don't know how to latch on to this. Um, so, and, and it's fascinating because I think over the years, I've, I've developed ways to kind of um, bridge those gaps. And basically to say to people, hey, just so that you know, like this is your value system, but these other musicians don't value the same things you do. It's fine to value different things, but just letting you know, you both value different things here. <laughs> so um, it, being that kind of like diplomat on just completely just the, the personal and human level has been really, really fascinating at times. You've used your work to focus on many social justice issues, ranging from Black Iris for the Me Too movement to The Light is the Same, a wind quintet composed for Imani Winds on a text by Rumi. Can you speak a little bit about how your inspiration to pursue these themes differs from your other works? You know, for me, it's always something personal. Um, to me, it's never an issue that's kind of outside of me. Um, and it has to feel like it's something that that deeply matters to me. You know, certainly I was one of the Me Too's of the Me Too movement. You know, I'm someone who experienced a lot of that as many composers who are women of my generation certainly have. And so I think for me, it's just a chance to process these things through my own lens and, and in my own voice. Um, and I think that's basically all I can do is to just add my voice to um, something that I, I care about. Um, so yeah, it, it is always something deeply personal, but it's also, um, I hope that my work gives people a way in, you know, and in this case, especially in Black Iris, um, one of the things that was so important to me was to really figure out how in an orchestral piece you can value women, right? What, what, what does that mean? And what does that look like? And so what it looked like for me in the piece was there was a section where there was a few solo instruments and a few lines in there. And I actually metered the piece 
by year from one measure per year um, since uh, Chicago Sinfonietta, the commissioning organization, since they started until that time when the piece was performed and basically asked every woman in the orchestra to sing in a range that only women could sing in to just hum like an E flat or a B flat and at the year that they entered the orchestra. So the idea is that people are listening to it and they're thinking, okay, number one, if there were no women in this orchestra, this section wouldn't even work. It wouldn't be possible to perform the piece if it was an all-male orchestra. And then on the other hand, you hear it kind of growing and growing and growing as the women keep on uh, entering into the orchestra. And it, it just makes you think like, these are real people who are here. We can hear their voices for just this one moment. And um, I try to think like that. You know, I try to actually think if, if I care about something, I don't necessarily only write it for myself to, uh, to process, but I try to do something that will at least allow other people into that feeling. So um, yeah, that was certainly the, the thing that I did for that for that work. And I mean, now, obviously, I'm, I'm working on pieces that have to do with the pandemic and how we all process that together. But my my goal is that everyone can find something in my work that no one feels um, antagonized. And certainly these movements can be so polarizing. You know, people can feel like they're on one side or the other, either you're the oppressed or the oppressor, I, you know, and, and they can just be so binary. And the idea is that um, the the less binary there are, the, the or the less binary it is, and the more kind of gradation there is, the more we can all see ourselves on some place in the spectrum, and we can see ourselves as being helpful to the movement rather than being the the demon of it, you know. So you've recently made a statement on social media, which made went slightly viral uh, about it was crazy. <laughs> I know, like what? Yeah. About how there is no need for you to use the term underrepresented in the second person. Now, this uh, lovely listeners, I do encourage you all to go and read this statement. It is really fascinating and really integral for us all to understand going forward. So this social media post came about with regards to how people engage you for commissions or performances. I, as I've just mentioned, this is so important for presenters and performers. And But would you mind expanding on these comments? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it's really interesting because as musicians, ultimately, we want to be engaged for our music. We want someone to, to love our music, to feel some uh, resonance with it, and to feel really excited about it, or to feel excited about working with us, to feel excited about building something new with us. And I feel like sometimes people who come from groups that are, for whatever reason, you know, uh, I mean, I don't even want to say marginalized because to be honest with you, um, I've been really grappling with the fact that, yes, technically speaking, I am a person of color, but all people of color don't face the same challenges. Mm -hmm. You know, certainly for me, I haven't faced a lot of the same challenges as people who are, um, you know, maybe uh, Black or um, Latinx or, you know, there, there are many different things even within those groups. So to kind of paint with a broad brush and for someone to decide that you are underrepresented and they will be your savior is a really patronizing thing to receive, you know, yeah. and in a way it kind of gaslights you, mm -hmm. you know, you just think to yourself, wait, do I need help? Like, am I okay? Am I good at my job? You know? And one of the things that's been so hard recently is that I feel and this, and this is so, um, so, uh, it's just a difficult thing to even talk about, but sometimes when I turn in work that I worked super hard on, people are surprised that 
it is good. And people are like, oh, I, th- we didn't know you were actually going to really write us a great piece. And it, 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 it's so hard. It's really, really hard to, to, to exist like that because you're, you never quite know whether, why you're being picked for something, why, uh, you know, an opportunity exists. Thank you so, so much to the wonderful and brilliant Rena Esmail. We look forward to seeing all you lovely sound weavers soon. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Soundweavers podcast. If you enjoyed our show, please subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, and most other major podcast platforms. We hope that you'll visit us at www.soundweaverscast.com, follow us on Facebook and Instagram at Soundweaverscast, and on Twitter at SWChambercast, where you'll get episodes as soon as they drop, show notes, and regular updates. This podcast is hosted by Rosanna Moore and engineered by Blair Kerner. I'm your producer, Adam Ballcordel. Our theme music was composed by Evan Henry and recorded by the Soundweavers team. The music you heard in today's podcast was composed by Rina Asmel and performed by Saili Oak, Rabindra Goswami, Ramu Pandit, David Hill, the Albany Symphony, Yale Scola Cantorum, and Juilliard 415. On behalf of the Soundweavers cast, see you in two weeks. <laughs>